On the Record with Gavin Riley. Brought to you by PwC on News Talk. A bit of a mixed bag on the front pages of the Sunday papers today, and uh, not a huge amount of great news unless you're a Sinn Fein supporter or a member. And we'll come to that in a couple of minutes' time. But other than that, it's um, it's it's pretty downbeat stuff. Um, we'll start with the front page of the Sunday Times. HSE braced for more cases of monkeypox. Uh, the HSE is expecting more cases of monkeypox in the coming days as public health officials intensify their efforts to contain a virus that originates in the jungles of West and Central Africa. The HSE, we are told, is attempting to trace people who may have been exposed to the virus by a man from the east of the country who tested positive on Friday after presenting with symptoms. The results of tests on a suspected second case are awaited. The public health agency in Northern Ireland record- recorded its first case on Thursday and expecting more in the weeks ahead. In a statement and yesterday, the HSC that said that people infected with monkeypox usually recover within weeks, though it warned that severe illness may occur to those with weak uh, immune systems, pregnant women and babies. There is no known cure. Um, Kim Roberts, who's an assistant professor of virology at Trinity, says more cases are almost certain because it can take up to seven days and sometimes weeks for symptoms to develop after exposure. She says that this means it can take longer to identify cases at this stage, uh, but it means that public health teams have time to identify the first contacts and to break the rate of transmission. We'll be talking to Anthony Staines from DCU uh, about that a little bit more later this hour. Um, also on the front page of the Sunday Times, remember talking to last week to Mark Daly, the Kahirlik of the Shannad, about his, his trip to Kiev to visit President Zelensky. Uh, he has gone from Kiev to Ballyferreter to the Shannad Chamber and now apparently to Tinder because fraudsters are using photographs of the Shannad Kahirlik to con women out of hundreds of thousands of euros in romance scams, which I suppose in a weird way is a, a bit of a compliment for Mark if they thought that his face would be attractive enough to, to get people interested. But one New Zealand woman interviewed by um, stuff.co.nz, which is a leading news website in New Zealand, um, she admitted to becoming infatuated with an online profile that used several pictures of Daly uh, under the fake name of Rodney Mullen. She sent the fraudsters €315,000, or its equivalent in New Zealand dollars. Somebody else sent more than €1 million, New Zealand dollars, which would be the equivalent of around €700,000, uh, to a man with the f- fake name Fred Ritterman, who also used pictures of Mark Daly on his profile. Um, one of them matched uh, with this fake Mark Daly in May 2018. Um, they, pre- they pretended that he was a building executive working in Dubai. They sent pictures, including one of a purported passport. Um, he said, I don't need a supermodel. I need a very good friend who knows when I'm tense by looking into my eyes. Uh, and then ultimately ended up in such a, an extended romance that they sent him hundreds of thousands of euros all uh, thinking that their their partner looked like the Kirlik of the Shannon. Um, front page of the Sunday Independent government on alert over growing risks to the economy uh, there's increasing concern in government Jody Corcoran tells us that the economy will be hit harder than expected in the current case uh, environment of extreme uncertainty Government sources telling the Sunday Independent that the economy and public finances were strong enough to stave off recession, but warned that the expected slowdown may be greater than was predicted only weeks ago. The concern relates to the threat of weaker than assumed growth, stagnation among Ireland's key trading partners in Europe. That's a prolonged period of little or no growth in the economy, typically less than 2% of annual growth. A leading member of the ECB's executive board earlier this month said that economic growth in the Eurozone had pretty much ground to a halt. Also on the front page of the Sunday Independent, alongside a photo Photograph of Ronan O'Gara looking pretty delighted after La Rochelle's victory in the Champions Cup yesterday. We're told that the GAA, the IRFU, the FAI and other sporting bodies will have their government funding cut by as much as 50% in the next two years unless they increase the number of women in their boards. That's after an interview with Jack Chambers, the Junior Minister for Sport, uh, who is uh, quoted today in the Sunday Independent. Uh, The front page of the Mail on Sunday... It has something of a follow-on to its scoop earlier this week when Craig Hughes told us that eight members of government parties have been the beneficiaries of hospitality treatment at a day at the races by some gambling companies. We're now told that the gambling industry is fighting government attempts to clamp down 
on betting shops near schools across the country. Submissions made by betting giants and industry leaders to the Oireachtas Justice Committee reveal the powerful gambling lobby is resisting key aspects of legislation to regulate the sector, which include protecting children from being exposed to betting promotional material or gambling brands of any kind near schools. The gambling regulation bill is due to come before the Dáil in the coming months and it will establish a gambling regulator to oversee and licence the sector. After more than a decade of promises by successive governments, it's estimated that between 50,000 and 250,000 people in Ireland are affected by gambling addiction but one of the things which that bill is proposing to do is to clamp down on the presence of gambling advertising near schools which in some cases would include gambling outlets which are based near schools apparently the gambling outlets concerned have some issues about that uh, speaking of which, by the way, the front page of the Business Post has uh, the Paddy Power, which is uh, the face of the bookmaking giant of the same name. This is Paddy Power, the person uh, who says that the issue of addiction has made the gambling industry pretty toxic. Uh, they were speaking on uh, Jarlath Regan's Irishman Abroad podcast and Paddy Power, who people might remember as being responsible for marketing at the bookmaker of the same name, uh, says it's not as much fun being in the industry now as it was back in the day because of how the industry is considered toxic. That wouldn't have been the case 10 or 15 years ago, he said. Uh, but the main story on the front page of the Business Post, and we'll start with this in just a moment, is that Sinn Féin has uh, recorded another level of support, of record support, at a time of rising public concern about the housing crisis. The party has overtaken the combined total of Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil for the first time ever in a Red Sea poll. People might remember a few months ago that Sinn Féin seemed to have reached a bit of a ceiling of 33 or 34% in these polls. They've now reached 36%, which is up a couple of points uh, since the last poll at the end of last month. But meanwhile, Fine Gael are at 20% and Fianna Fáil are at 15%, which means that for the first time ever in the history of Red Sea opinion polls, Sinn Féin now outpolls both of its major rivals combined, which seems like an ideal point to jump in with our papers panel this morning of John O'Brennan, who's a professor of European integration at NUI Maynooth, and also Francis Fitzgerald, Fine Gael MEP for Dublin and former Taunashta. Francis, I can't imagine you're too thrilled at seeing an opinion poll which shows that Sinn Féin are now more popular than your party and Fianna Fáil combined. But not more popular than the three coalition members, so which would be forty oh, so percent. Well, so that that's the the breaking point. That's the consolation <laughs> you're taking this morning. I'm just I'm just naming those <laughs> figures. Uh, no, clearly uh, a huge amount of work to be done uh, by the government parties, uh, by Fine Gael, Fianna Fáil, uh, and and the Greens. Um, very strong support for Sinn Féin in this poll once again. But when you Two years out from an election, I would say that, wouldn't I? Mm. Um, obviously, it's a reflection of this moment in time, uh, how the public are looking at the issues. Uh, not surprising in some ways, given uh, the huge challenges uh, that uh, this government and indeed governments across Europe are facing uh, in terms of uh, here at home. And the papers are very local this week, somewhat surprising given what's happening in Ukraine. Uh, but given the, the challenges of the cost of living, housing uh, and so on, uh, uh, the uh, Ukrainian war, the impact that that's having. Um, hugely challenging time to be in government, uh, but work to be done. Uh, mm. The other side of the story, of course, is we're seeing huge rise in employment and jobs. But of course, to have a job is no longer enough if you can't access housing, mm. if you have social issues around care, around everything else. Sure. So uh, hugely uh, challenging. Uh, it's a huge challenging. You say work to be done. And of course, cost of living it couldn't necessarily have been foreseen at the time the government was formed. But when you say work to be done on other fronts and you mention health and the cost of housing, those are issues in which the current government has now had two months or two years, excuse me, to try and make its mark. And evidently people are not impressed with the markets making. Yes, people want things done immediately. They want it done urgently. And I think the big test of, of government is going to, to be in the next period, how urgently, how quickly uh, they can deal with the issues. Some of them are not overnight issues, as we well know, uh, but people will say we've been in government a long time, which we have, mm. uh, and uh, they will want results. Um, now, there's an interesting article 
article in the Business Post, the analysis of the polls yeah. by Richard Caldwell, where he says, if the cost of living crisis revolves, resolves itself before the next general election, then housing will still be the biggest issue when the country goes to the poll. Mm. So that's a, a kind of a, a considered mm. analysis but of if, the research. But if, if that is a, a topic or a, a political field in which your party has been in government for, by the next election, it could be 14 years unbroken, it would be very difficult to convince voters that your party has the solutions if a lot of the problems have manifested on your watch. Well, you know, elections have a different dynamic and the point I would make is that the challenges, you know, they they never go away. They do vary. When we came in first, we were dealing with, of course, recovering our sovereignty. We were dealing uh, with other issues. The challenges now have crystallised, partly because of economic success and the demand for housing, have crystallised around different issues, which huge money is going in thanks to our economic success but as I said not quickly enough not fast enough but of course it is a crisis that we share right across the European Union the housing crisis is more and more central in all of our capital cities and indeed uh, member states as I say right across Europe Yeah, I'll, I'll just pick John's brain on that in just a moment just because you, you might uh, come to face to face with other people from other countries is it as much of a pressing concern in other countries because we don't hear very much about there being a chronic health housing shortage in the other European capitals. You don't hear much about it in Paris or in Berlin or in Rome or in Madrid. Is increasingly, it as present there? Increasingly becoming a focus even in the European Parliament where it is seen as particularly for the younger generation it's seen as more and more of an issue how to access housing. You're seeing it in Berlin now, a city where you didn't see it before. You're seeing it across Europe. I think obviously some very country, big countries like France, probably not in the rural areas as much, but you're seeing it obviously right across Ireland now uh, perhaps not as widespread across the country but certainly the capitals I think it's something mm. that we share um, John O'Brien from Anuth University good morning to you uh, your reflections on that poll and, and the fact that Sinn Féin now are more popular than the other two large parties combined yeah well I I think we should acknowledge just the extraordinary rise of Sinn Féin um, to be at a point where their com- their vote exceeds that of Fianna Fáil Fianna Gael 100 years after the founding of the state it is astonishing and While government, I think, will be worried about this because the trend is discernible over a period of time. This isn't a rogue poll by any means. Mm. Um, Government will probably think we've got time on our side. If we can just begin to deliver on the housing for all commitments and we increase the number of units uh, going into the system in advance of an anticipated election halfway through the government's programme, I think actually the House of Living uh, that the cost of living crisis is the more serious one, uh, or, or you might say the intersection between the two yeah. uh, is one that is just presenting tremendous challenges. And of course, if you're in opposition, you can make hay uh, because government is continually having to go out on the airwaves in defensive mode, mm. not talking about anything other than uh, being on the back yeah, foot. Because, of course, then people people in studios like this or interviewers like me will go to government figures and say, is there going to be another mini budget or what can you do to try and make rent more affordable or to try and keep the cost of petrol down below two euro a litre? And if they say, well, we've already done this, it's all well and good what you've already done. But if it's not helping people to get through the, the surge, then... It's very easy for the opposition to make hay, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And I think we can see the impact of cost of living increases literally all around us, certainly in some sectors more than others, food and energy, for example. But I think it's not just in Ireland this is going on. Governments are discussing what 
the best sort of way forward mm. is. Um, it seems to be the case here that Leo Varadkar and others are arguing that we should reduce charges as much as possible. Yeah. So third level fees, which Simon Harris announced some weeks ago, would mm. be reduced on an incremental basis that we might go a bit further faster. Because the alternative to that, if you're putting more people, more money in people's pockets, potentially actually exacerbates the inflation problem. We could see it yeah. actually self-defeating. the inflation problem does look like, I remember some presentations from Christine Lagarde. I mean, people were talking about a couple of months at the beginning. Now they're talking about two years of, of inflation. This is not something that's going to go away well, if it's all of that quickly. Then, then cost of living won't have resolved itself by the time of the next general election. Well, it depends what the government does, <laughs> Gavin. But I think also you have to think of the next election in many ways and we see this across Europe as well. I mean, it is populism versus sort of, you know, more centralism. And uh, I think there have been interesting elections around Europe in relation to, to populism and more centrist governments. And I think, you know, that reaches a more, you know, critical and telling point where the closer you are to an election and people when people are thinking about government formation then that can but I, I have to acknowledge of course what John is saying about mm. about the percentage that uh, Sinn Féin have yeah. got in but this th- th- That's an interesting point though about populists being defeated because there's a lot of evidence for this over the last year in the Czech Republic in Slovakia in Slovenia three mm. populist governments lost office uh, even in the context yeah. of all these We had a populist seeking election in France a month ago and didn't yes. make it over the line but, but yet we've also had Victor Orban defeating an allied uh, opposition of six different parties who tried to come together to stop him yep, and failed you, pretty miserably. Uh, but uh, we're going to see another test of this I think in France in the coming weeks with the parliamentary, the parliamentary election. Elections, and yes. all the indications appear to be that Macron is going to win an overall majority. It may not be very much mm. but the very fact that he can do that after a term in power suggests that governments aren't simply fated to lose because of all and of these And you know solutions are always easy from opposition. You know the job of opposition they tend to oppose you know simple solutions and at the same time you see government having working through the housing for all putting more and more money into that and the health service the problems of, of our modern world are incredibly mm. complex but, to, to, to solve but but there are but some you, you know uh, we're you have to keep working but on there, it, there are course. some proposed solutions for example on housing which are also mentioned in this Red Sea poll and some of the questions I'm struck are, are things which have been kicked around um, for an awful long time so for example people are asked whether they would as uh, favour uh, reducing the, the size of the deposit needed by first time buyers if they can prove an ability to make repayments and there's universal support across all fronts including for Fine Gael voters 81% of them say that should be done 77% of people naturally want to see house prices decline I presume the others are, are uh, house homeowners who don't want their own uh, um, you know their own assets to go down but for example um, allow first time buyers to borrow more than three and a half times their salary if they can show a history of higher rental repayments 83% of Sinn Féin voters say yeah 83% of Fianna Fáil voters say yeah 82% of Fine Gael voters say yes now I remember uh, it must be close to a decade ago when those central bank rules were brought in to try and take some of the heat out of the housing market Francis and I remember there being discussion among yourself and other government ministers at the time saying, well, yeah, we should probably do that. We should probably adjust the rules so that if you have a history of being able to make your rental repayments, that it's taken into account when you're looking for a mortgage. And it would seem like a very simple thing to just adjust the arithmetic to do and yet has never been done. I'm not surprised that Fine Gael voters support most of these things here. When I look at them, I say, mm. well, if you're able to pay rent of, of you know, 2000 yeah. a month, but you can't get a mortgage, it doesn't seem to make sense. Mm. On the other hand, but you, you have, but yes, but it's but central those, bank. Those, now, voters, remember, those voters support a government that's been in power for 11 years and well, it's never but, happened. But let's, well, this is a central bank decision on lending rules and we have to respect the independence of the central bank and there are reasons why they're balancing risk. Um, you know, the state uh, our Irish banks have been in 
Uh, but I think what's here in relation to they are uh, the government, I believe, are going to introduce this uh, tax on, on, on vacant homes. Again, people would say, but then you've got to work out the detail of that. What homes vacant for how long, etc. But I think what, what they've asked here, um, certainly I'd like to see the government acting on, on many of these. But as mm. I say, some of those uh, points you've made, Gavin, that is about Central Bank. Uh, so that you, your argument then would be that things like, for example, allowing first-time buyers to borrow more than that if they can prove a savings record or a rental payments record, that it's actually just not within the gift of a government to ensure? I don't believe it is, but I do think it is something that should be taken uh, into account. And I think you, as as the economy, of course, there's a lot of threats to the economy, but we, we have had, uh, you know, good growth here. We have, uh, you know, g- good figures. Um, but, I mean, this is a central bank decision about the, the levels of, of borrowing that can be allowed. But, of course, government ministers have always said mm. what they, you know, what they believe in in relation to borrowing. Yeah. Uh, introduce a short-term ban on, on a, let, a ban on short-term letting uh, of entire homes and rent pressure zones. That's one that, that Francis is pointing out. Um, 63% of Sinn Féin voters in favour of that. 64 Fianna Fáil, 69 Fianna Gael. That does seem, John, like something that governments have been promising and Ed Dyer O'Brien is, is getting towards that. But it seems like something which has been no, no, nominally on government agendas for an awful long time and hasn't ever really managed to progress that much. Yeah. Maybe it's uh, through lack of enforcement, perhaps. Um, yes, I mean... <laughs> There are all kinds of um, solutions that could provide relief, but I don't think it's much more than that in the short term context. And we should acknowledge this isn't just an Irish problem, as Francis said. For example, a recent um, comparative report on house price uh, increases around the world showed Ireland very much in the mid-range, about 15% per annum over the last year. Sweden, it was 25%. In Australia, it was 25%. So this is genuinely so, a global but problem. Was, what's but, happening then at, at a worldwide level that's causing property prices to go up so much? Is it financial speculation? Is is there a similar you know, downturn in construction that, that other countries are only coming out of as well? Or how does Because we think of it as being a uniquely Irish thing. Mm. We, we basically didn't build for five years and it turns out that actually we missed an awful lot of lost time and now we're scrambling to keep up and that's why prices are going up. Yeah. But but it's, it's more universal than that. Part of it is pent up demand, mm-hmm. I think, as a result of COVID. Um, part of it also is something that Francis pointed to earlier, which is that capital cities and large cities in most countries, even in poor countries, are doing pretty well. So we have amongst the poorer states of the European Union, for example, Bulgaria and Romania, Sofia and Bucharest, their capitals are thriving. So are some other cities. The countryside is being completely denuded of people. Uh, and that's a that's a longer term trend that is there. But it's actually exacerbating some of the other trends that also are drawing people, especially young graduates from the countryside into capital cities, either in their own country or elsewhere. So it's not just an Irish problem, but I would point out that all the political parties in Ireland are speaking out of both sides of their mouths. If you look at the problem of nimbyism, Mm. it's actually got significantly worse. While everybody talks the talk of building more houses, most housing plans where they have appeared in Dublin by developers are being mm. actively opposed and not just by government parties but by Sinn Féin as well. Uh, should just ask you then on that front before we move on Francis have you ever uh, opposed housing developments in Dublin Midwest or anywhere else? Um, <coughs> or I, raised uh, some some concerns or objections I, I about would what have, was proposed? I would have raised concerns about large developments where they would have overlooked local residential areas all right on behalf of residence groups uh, but generally speaking um, you know, I've had SDZs, for example, in, in, in the areas I represented and, you know, fully supported those. Mm. Um, I think almost every politician at some point will have put in, you know, an ob- observation. Mm. I, I've often put in observations on Do you think on sometimes the nuance gets lost?
crossed between a, an objection and an observation or, or something that they'd like probably to Probably does, probably does. But I think obviously the, the rejection of a planning uh, issue is, is far more serious than, uh, you know, an ob- I think it's reasonable uh, to put in observations. But the downright opposition that we've seen to, to big schemes, uh, you know, and Sinn Féin have been very good at doing this, I, I think really, you know, we, no. we can't continue there's, that. There's some pretty large proposed developments though around Dundrum, for example, there's an apartment block with 700 apartments and there's uh, people from all parties and none is who are so? objecting to that. Yeah, including some of your own party colleagues. Well, um, I mean, I, I, we, we need housing desperately. So I think that those objections have to be kept to an absolute mm. minimum. Uh, Liam and Leash not quite convinced about some of those proposals in the Red Sea poll. He says, so they want the banks to lend more so that developers can charge more for houses. He says the Celtic Tiger years come to mind. And somebody else says in response to the poll, as a member of Fianna Fáil, I strongly believe the government party should go to the people now before the polls get even worse. Sinn Féin are promising everyone that you can have everything you ever wanted and someone else will pay. The longer they have to sit in the opposition, then their popularity will only increase to an inevitable overall majority, says that person. That's a an interesting argument about how Turkey should embrace the earlier <laughs> onset of Christmas. But uh, still joined in studio by John O'Brien and Francis Fitzgerald MEP. And just before we move on to monkeypox, now we were discussing during the ad break there some of the scenes that we're seeing this morning in Dublin Airport. Seems to be as bad, if not worse, than ever. Uh, and Francis, you, you're pointing out, obviously, you do a lot of um, commuting over and back to Brussels for the nature of your work and the uh, the just the sheer how unpredictable the Dublin it's Airport the situation can be. It's the unpredictability of it. I saw a headline yesterday that said it's only going to be a half an hour queue during the summer and it has been good on some days over the last few weeks where it might be half an hour but of course you're always saying to yourself should I be there three hours hmm. and families must be saying that should I be there three or four hours ahead this morning I gather it's unpredictable and very slow yeah. again today but you are seeing some of these problems across Europe uh, with, with staff shortages for example in Chipotle so, in, so in not, the not Netherlands just here, as well. In Amsterdam too. Yes, I mean uh, there there are staff shortages uh, apparently, uh, but I, mean, the, I think the problems are utterly unacceptable in Dublin Airport. I think it's dreadful. Um, they do say they've recruited more people, but it's the unpredictability. Here we go again this morning. So uh, what's it going to be like for families trying to get away on a summer mm. holiday? That's the worry, I think. And keeping young kids amused for three hours in an airport is not easy. Yeah, I see uh, yesterday on the front page of the Irish Independent, the airport was promising queues of less than 30 minutes by early June. Uh, early June being Tuesday uh, or Wednesday and uh, certainly this morning. It's, it's, it's a long way from 30 minutes. Uh, Pat Tech 53106 saying allowing people to borrow more will only increase prices further it will increase people's debt burden when interest rates are likely to rise and fix nothing and we know this a couple of people drawing parallels between the, what we do about the cost of living people are saying put more money in your pockets and then well as proven with housing it does lead to a certain amount of inflation and somebody else says on the Airbnb question who cares if it's a short term solution they say we need short term relief uh, do keep your texts coming 53106 as I say is the number for your text um, I mentioned on the front page of the Sunday Times when I was going through the front pages that the HSE is bracing itself for more cases of monkeypox and that there is a second sample being examined uh, and that people are now being uh, identified as close contacts of a uh, one man in the east of the country who tested positive on Friday. Uh, we're joined on the line by Professor of Health Systems at DCU, Anthony Staines. Um, Anthony, people will naturally uh, have a little bit of a view in their minds based on what we've had in the last two years about what we should expect when we hear concerns about public health and infectious diseases. Um, to your mind, what sort of threat does monkeypox actually pose to us? Very modest threat, but one we should not ignore. Every every year, uh, and as climate change gets worse, this happens more frequently, new viruses come into contact with human populations. And monkeypox is a virus that has begun to spread out of Africa, and no one is quite sure why. But the virus itself seems to spread by very close 
contact. And the, the two usual ways of getting it are contact in a household and through sex. Now, it's not a sexually transmitted disease as such. So something like wearing a condom provides very little protection against monkeypox. So is it more of a case of a like prolonged skin to skin contact than effectively? Prolonged skin to skin contact seems to be the, the issue. And it, it spreads very slowly. It should be an easy enough virus to control, providing people come forward. The symptoms are usually a significant fever. So you've, you've a high temperature, you feel poorly. And this a rash develops typically one or two days after the fever, though it can take a bit longer than that. And the rash looks more like chicken pox than anything else you've seen. Mm. It's not normally a very serious illness, but it can be in elderly people, in small children and in people who are immunosuppressed. So it can cause problems. And um, just go back backwards, Anthony, if I can, just for a minute and explain what you think is the role of climate change in exacerbating the increase in the spread of diseases like this. Climate change is driving animal populations out of their normal ranges and human populations into areas where animals live. There's a very detailed analysis of about 40 years of data published in Nature a few months ago that documents what has happened and predicts what may happen in the future. And it's very much driven now by climate change and to an extent by human population growth. But climate change is pushing people into cities. It's pushing animals into closer proximity to people. And we're seeing connections that we never saw before. So this is this is what living with climate change looks like. This is the forest. This is another version of the forest fires, the floods we saw last summer in Germany. Uh, all of this is part of one underlying process mm. um, there'll be some people who, who will have seen uh, in the coverage this week that they'll have been you know they'll be asking is there a vaccine for monkeypox and we're told that the vaccine for monkeypox is the vaccine against smallpox which we basically stopped yeah. using 50 years ago because smallpox had been eradicated people would sort of, sort of wonder then well if you've already eradicated smallpox and everyone basically mm. has an immunity against it or maybe people maybe people maybe we don't and people presume that they do how does a, a related disease like this begin to get out Older people, people in their in their fifth, in their sixties, will often have had smallpox vaccine uh, in early life, and they are probably quite immune. Nobody younger than that has had smallpox vaccine, so there's no population immunity to monkeypox in in our populations. The vaccine can be used as part of the control in close contacts, and it can stop close contacts developing disease, which is obviously desirable. Uh, and it can prevent, it can protect people who are, say, in the household with someone who has monkeypox. So there's various ways to use the vaccine. And there's nearly 50 years experience with ma- using vaccine to manage smallpox, mm. which will be used by you know people who are really expert. Yeah. And I'm not the expert. Well, I was going to say, because I presume that this is something we have had, I presume, pretty much no cases of smallpox since we stopped vaccinating against it. So I wonder, like, do you even know whether we have any kind of national stockpile that we could start to issue to close contacts to try and, and nip this in the bud? It, it has been ordered, and I see a report in one of the papers this morning that it's actually arrived in Ireland. So it's here. Um, but the, the number of, of doses available is relatively limited. So there's no question at the moment of a mass vaccination campaign. This is a virus we can control and sit on. As we do, from we, we often get outbreaks of rare and exotic diseases in Ireland and you never hear about them 
because you know they're managed by the health service, they're managed by HPSC, they're managed by the infectious disease specialists, and the outbreak is stopped in its tracks. And that's what we want to do here. And so we're asking people who are worried or concerned to come forward, come to your GP. If you're worried you might have uh, sexually acquired monkeypox, you can go to an STI clinic. We have the tests. We have people trained to recognise it. We know what to do. We know how to manage this. We know how to manage your close contacts. But you have to come forward. You know, we, we can't go searching the highways and the byways and mm. see if anyone has a rash. Um, I suppose, uh, and I make this final question before I let you go, Anthony. And thank you very much for taking our call again this morning. Um, that we, it, there, there's both uh, relative to COVID, that there's both upsides and downsides of this. Down, the upsides being that there, are, it's it's much more isolated. It's not already endemic. We don't know of any asymptomatic spread, which means that anyone who who is presenting with the symptoms more than likely probably has it. But that's very few people, which means you can stop it before it gains any major root in any population. But on the flip side, if it takes at least seven days and sometimes as many as three weeks for people to develop symptoms that often people might not know that they are infectious before it breaks out in them. Well, that, that's why we're saying to people, you know, if you're approached by the public health teams, please cooperate with them. Please tell us, you know, who you've been in contact with. We're, the, there's huge confidentiality and discretion around anything you tell us. So let us know. We can nip this in the bud. This is the virus that we can control. It will not spread anything like COVID. But it's, it, the Irish population I, will, I think, cooperate with us. And I'm, I'm asking people to do that now. Uh, Anthony Staines is a Professor of Public Health Systems in DCU. Anthony, thank you very much again for taking our call this morning at uh, 11.36 and on the record. Gavin Riley still joined the studio by John O'Brennan and Francis Fitzgerald. Um, still lots of texts coming in about housing. Someone says the construction model we have in Ireland was broken even before the Celtic Tiger. Lack of regulation of relationships between developers, banks and politicians, along with lack of regulatory implementation all at the core. Um, someone else on the airport issue says, here's a novel idea, just put more flights on out of Cork and Shannon Airport and stop behaving like there's only one in Ireland, which is a, a pretty reasonable response in fairness has to be said uh, and someone else on the poll says this government's record around failure to plan for areas like disability childcare housing health and education is coming back to haunt them now people are far more savvy and they can see through the waffle says that texture 53106 for your text um, just because we have a, a former justice minister in studio I want to discuss the piece on page 4 today of the Sunday Times which is about uh, the present Justice Minister Helen McEntee uh, making the case for allowing Gardaí to use facial recognition technology as an investigative tool uh, Helen McEntee said, if you're not using the latest technologies available, then you cannot live up to your mission, she said when she was speaking to the GRA at the conference in Mayo. Your primary duty in Andrade Shia is to protect the public. Many in international law enforcement, such as Europol, Interpol, the UK's national crime agency, uh, already use facial recognition technology. They use it to search for missing children, to tackle sex, uh, child sex exploitation and to prevent terrorism and organised crime. And she said, we have to do similar in Ireland if we are to follow suit. This strikes me, Francis Fitzgerald, as something which has been... Uh, tabled for a long time and it does get raised with you know good reason by by civil liberties campaigners as being unnecessary big brother style intrusion and people will wonder whether the state is actually competent or actually would be acting in good faith by accruing data of this sort of scale Uh, was it something that was proposed in your time i don't remember it being proposed but it probably has been on the table for quite a while 
uh, in the sense that we have to use more and more technology. So a facial rec- recognition technology, I think it's inevitable that we will use it. The question is, how do you regulate it? How do you monitor? How do you make sure it's not abused? It has been abused by other countries, for example, like China against the Uyghur people. But just this week, I was in Europol uh, and Eurojust in The Hague on a, a mission to look at trafficking across Europe. Mm. And I was told about the millions of images that are online. And I said, do you need more legislation in order to access these? They said, no, but we need people who are skilled uh, in the technology in order to look at this range of data that we have. But it is absolutely inevitable if you're dealing with international criminal gangs, if you're dealing with international crime, Mm. that you have to use technology. You have to be able to access technology because so much of crime is done online now, including, as we know, uh, abuse of children uh, uh, and all of that area needs, uh, you know, you have to go onto the internet and access these criminal gangs and see what they're doing. You you can understand, though, the the reticence of a lot of people that given that we have a history of, uh, you know, the Guardi compiling pulse files against people who don't necessarily have, have, have ever done anything wrong. If you have facial recognition technology being deployed at the same time as Guardi are also making the case for the use of body cams, that it begins to look very dystopian very quickly that you can have this massive archive of cameras fitted to a, a guard's vest as they're walking around for there to be some intelligible software that then pieces together strings of where people were moving from time to time and having natural worries that they're going to start profiling the movements of people who have no reason to be in a guard radar at all. Well, this is about the professionalisation of the guards and the high standards, uh, making sure that there's oversight and that it's done properly. But I think it is inevitable that we will have to both resource uh, uh, and and use uh, this type of technology in the years ahead. Otherwise, we will not deal with international crime, deal national crime the way we need to. Mm. Uh, the, the guards will be outfoxed by these criminal gangs. But yes, I mean, I think Brendan O'Connor has a, a somewhat amusing piece in the front of The Independent where he uh, he talks about how we've got so used to technology during the, the COVID pandemic and, you know, our own movements being tracked and so on. And uh, he kind of said, let's hope we have a summer where we don't, uh, you know, sort of overreact that it can we can but at least try he, and enjoy the but summer he, but he, he, he does point out that, that there was a UCD study during the week which found that half of the population don't trust the government anymore which then you, you can understand how yes, people will and be well, unsettled by that's a huge by democratic a, challenge a, that's a, for a sure a government which is untrusted by the public which is then building together a profile of all of your movements and can develop software to, to piece all the bits together well, I think that's putting the two different things together, but I, I, I understand where you're coming from. Well, I mean, I think they're, look, they're, I mean, look, we have to minds. we have to rebuild trust in democracy. That's for sure. And in government. Uh, again, we're not unique when it comes to that. Mm. I, I think it's absolutely critical. I mean, democracy is under threat around the world. We only have one seven, 17 percent of countries that have fully developed democracies. So, you know, uh, but I, I do think mm. it's all about how it's used, uh, the legislation, you know, that will be, that will be uh, brought in uh, and careful monitoring. Yeah. Um, John Mooney's piece I think to be fair uh, John O'Brien is quite balanced because it discusses some of the pros and cons for example it has a, a retired detective inspector who led the investigation into the death of Adrian Donoghue the, the Garda who was uh, shot dead at the, the Lordship Credit Union in 2013 um, he says that a team of eight Garda spent months sifting through hours of CCTV yeah. from 350 systems and there was so much material that they even didn't have the room to store it and the manpower that it would take to try and watch all of that and to spot common threads if you could do something algorithmically it would be very helpful 
And then on the other hand, software engineers saying that, you know, it's all limited in its accuracy because there can be false positives and you need to have extremely robust processes and training around that phenomenon of automation bias and that you could have legislation passed without specifying how it's supposed to be used and it becoming quite dystopian quite quickly. Yeah, I accept the arguments about the potential utility of it, but you're right. The image I see here is Blade Runner 2034. You know, it is... Uh, something like this being misused by the authorities uh, as an instrument of control. And we are seeing that play out in the most terrible way in China, in Xinjiang province, in the west of the country, where the Chinese authorities have been using it to corral and keep subjugated uh, in the worst sort of ways, the Uyghur population. Um, So I think Francis is right. How you regulate this uh, technology will be absolutely crucial. I think we'll probably learn from by you know being late adopters, learning from the mistakes that inevitably yeah. are going to be made in other countries. Um, but it's something I think that we have to be very careful about because it does suggest a slippery slope yeah. whereby authorities want to know more and more, often, you know, information that's yeah. very innocuous. But the trend is one I think that will send fear uh, down many people's uh, spines. I suppose it's a case of, of the the risks, the potential risks of abuse being slightly more tangible than the perceived benefits because the benefits are always hypothetical but you can imagine in, in real terms, in very tangible terms how this could be used to build profiles because people have done nothing wrong. Yes, absolutely. But in reading John Mooney's piece earlier I was sort of struck by the parallel with the European judgment on Graham Dwyer and on data retention. Um, the authorities, it seems to me will have to be very careful here mm. uh, because they run could run into very difficult legal terrain about how they capture and store images yeah. uh, that have sometimes very highly personalised information. But on the other hand, if the public start hearing about how crime gangs are, are, are dealt with, how the abuse of children can be stopped online, how uh, you know all sorts of uh, financial fraud online can be dealt with by the proper use of this technology and where the evidence can be accumulated... Obviously, you need a lot more than, than just simply yeah. this material. But, you know, that's something the public would be very keen to see as well. Yeah, maybe we need to see some, some tangible benefits of how it has worked in some other countries. Still, lots of messages coming in about the situation in, in Dublin Airport. Really just farcical stuff this morning. Um, one texter has been in touch to say that earlier I dropped my daughter to the airport to get a flight at 12.55 to London. Guards had blocked off the roads. The volume of people in the queues looks like an accident about to happen. It was scary looking. No order in the place and nobody in charge, says this texter. I'm waiting in a car park in Whitehall to go back and collect her, presumably because they don't think that that person is going to make their flight. And that's if that's a an afternoon flight when airports are usually a lot less busy, it's one thing for, for flights at six or seven or eight in the morning because people want to get their full day in when they're going to. But it's if it's an afternoon flight and that's at a point when usually crowds would have filtered out of an airport, that that's pretty alarming. Uh, particularly as someone who's supposed to be getting an early morning flight from Dublin Airport next Saturday, I'm already kind of wondering how much earlier I need to get there to, to get through it. Um, it is 11.48, Gavin Wiley, as I said, on the record, still joined in studio by Francis Fitzgerald and, and John O'Brennan. Um, there's a piece on the front page of the Sunday Times below the fold uh, of Donald Trump's address to the NRA convention uh, in Texas, only about 300 miles away from Uvalde, where the the terrible school shooting at Robb Elementary took place during the week. Um, Donald Trump says that defending the Second Amendment, which is the right to bear arms, is about defending law, order and life. 
uh, which is a sentence which is very difficult to make sense of given what's been happening. Now, we know as law and order conservatives that we have no higher goal than to reduce violent crime by the greatest degree possible. He says the way to do this was not with grotesque calls for fresh restrictions on gun ownership. It was with more guns because the existence of evil is one of the, benefit, the best reasons to arm law-abiding citizens. Um, it's very difficult, John O'Brien, to understand why America thinks that it has the solution that every other country has tried and failed to do and it never seems to get any better. Yeah, uh, looked at from Europe, it's just completely baffling and sickening. We just don't understand the kind of culture which a decade on from the massacre at Sandy Hook Mm. produces something similar and in a context where the environment has become even more permissible for those who own guns. The idea that an 18 year old can, without any background check, go in and buy assault weapons and then bludgeon these poor kids to death in the way that he did is just astonishing. And then to get the excuses that Republicans like Trump and Ted Cruz in the most cynical fashion possible Mm. offer. Um, And I think it's interesting that all of this has happened. Remember on Friday we had the National Rifle Association, um, um, which in an incredible act of doublespeak refers to itself as a civil rights association. Um, It held its convention in Houston, but it seems to me the NRA is not really the problem anymore. The problem is that right-wing politicians in virtually half of America's states calculate that they cannot afford to give any ground to Democrats on uh, guns, that they absolutely need the wholehearted support Mm. of uh, those people who support the Second Amendment. The cynicism of it is just dreadful. It will get worse, I think, because Mm. the Supreme Court is expected to deliver a judgment within the next few weeks, which will make guns, it's thought, even more widely available or make it more difficult to actually... What what, what safeguards are currently there that a Supreme Court could could lose? Because it sort of seems pretty much like a free-for-all as it already is. Well, there's a patchwork quilt, depending on which state, you're, you're talking about, but I gathered that the significance of this judgment will be one that applies uh, to uh, the United mm. States in totality and that it will just make the environment even more uh, permissible. It's just shocking. Yeah. And uh, our reaction to it, I think, is one that's shared all over the world. Yeah. Um, and, you know, when we hear the sort of doublespeak that we've seen this week from Greg Abbott, the governor of Texas and others. Um, It just reminds us of the very, very different track that the United States is on to much of the rest of the world. Mm. Um, Francis, this piece by Just Lancy on the front page of the Sunday Times, it also points out that there's there's nearly 400 million guns in civilian hands in America. So forget about, uh, you know, heavily armed police. And that's a whole different debate. And we can question the merits of that some other time. But if civilians have nearly 400 million weapons, then, yes, OK, the rest of Europe and the rest of the world will sort of tut and go, God, these guys don't know any better if you just get rid of the guns. You know, you can argue with 400 million guns in civilian hands, you can't get rid of them. Like, they're out there then. So, it's, so, it's, so if they're out there, what do you do? It's pretty tough. I mean, I think when Johns talks about the you know National Rifle Association, I mean, they seem to have ownership of the Republican senators and congressmen. It's quite extraordinary. And the debate is very polarised. Uh, and you don't see any of the Republicans coming out really uh, looking for an alternative. And it is very challenging mm. because if you have this fear uh, and you know murders, uh, the highest number ever in America, according to Josh Clancy here in the in the um, Times, where he says 40 
45,000 mm. Americans were killed by guns. So, I mean, until you begin to get a more balanced political debate about it, it's hard to see what you can do about those 400 uh, million uh, guns. I mean, they are legal. Yeah. And, and citizens feel that, I mean, if you're hearing on the one hand, the way to defend yourself is more guns and to tra- teach, tra- uh, get to teachers mm. learning how to use guns. Uh, well, then citizens are going to think, well, maybe I should get a gun as well. Mm. If you began to get a different, more nuanced debate about public safety, you might see a change. But I wouldn't hold out much hope for it right now. And Trump, of course, uh, I didn't know before entering politics, he was yeah. supporter of a ban on assault yeah, this, this weapons point, yeah. with no known enthusiasm. Yes, but he moved very quickly. Yeah, so to, in, in to, 2015, to so yeah. before entering politics, Trump was a, a supporter of a ban on assault weapons, no known enthusiasm for arms. In 2015, running for president, he said that the answer to mass shootings was more guns and he promised to create uh, gun-free zones. The NRA endorsed him in 2016, endorsed, uh, donated more than $30 million to his campaign and then as a result we have his performance in Houston of another example of the chokehold it says that the gun lobby has over conservative politics. But it probably just ought to be pointed out because we, we just think of this as being a Republican preserve. Firstly, the Republicans don't control any of the three uh, branches of, of e- either House of Congress or uh, the presidency right now. But it's also, it's not like the Democrats have been too willing to, to grab this by the horns because, you know, someone pointed out that there was a effectively a congressional by-election in Texas recently enough or in somewhere in Southern California and the Democrats put forward someone with pro-gun, pro-NRA views because that's what the electorate there wanted. So it's not as if yeah. the Democrats are whiter than white on this either. No, um, and it was, it was really extraordinary to watch Joe Biden this week when he talked about this publicly when he had a press conference. Um, he just seemed utterly helpless to me because, you know, the numbers in Congress are what they are, mm. just as you've said. And for, for all that like there if were... He's, if he's got the House and, if, and they have the tie-breaking vote in the Senate, and like he's going around, it's like that Ned Flanders skit in The Simpsons that he's like, he's tried nothing and he's all out of ideas. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, many of those uh, people who are up for election this November, whether they're Democrats or Republicans, um, you know, they live in fear of the Second Amendment, that they may be perceived as too soft on... Uh, crime. There is this sort of grisly thing that plays out every time there's a massacre like this when some Democrats, like Senator Chris Murphy, for example, really very, very articulate and very mm. passionate on the House floor uh, immediately on Monday evening. Uh, but, you know, within a few days, there's significant pushback. People begin to speak about mental health as the real problem and so forth. And in the end, it's really about a lack of political will and lack of political courage, I think, mm. in both parties. But predominantly so in the Republican Party, mm-hmm. which has become a sort of death cult more than a it conventional party. It seems very difficult to break the impasse. And yet they gave that great reaction to the New Zealand Premier when she talked about she took you know immediate action yeah. after that horrific attack uh, in New Zealand. She got a great response from her speeches. I think it was in Harvard she was uh, this week. But it's very hard to break it in American politics and it does take courage. You would have thought Joe Biden would try uh, some initiatives in the House. But of course, and Trump has lost, uh, Trump supporters have lost two recent races in Mm. the States which is kind of interesting but um, meeting with some Americans this week what they were saying to me is nobody knows whether he's going to run again or not. Of course the EU is really delighted that he's not there now with the war in Ukraine. Um, Barry says and this might be interpreted glibly but I don't think he actually means it in a glib sense he just says ban bullets that way they can all keep their guns and look if you have a constitutional right to to bear arms you don't have a constitutional right to uh, to get the ammunition to fire them so maybe there is some some workaround that the Biden administration could think of there Um, it is 11.56 I'm going to have to let you go thank you both very much for coming in this morning John O'Brennan is Professor of European Integration at Maynooth University and Francis Fitzgerald is a Fine Gael MEP for Dublin 
On the Record with Gavin Riley. Brought to you by PWC. Sunday morning at 11. On News Talk.